Welcome to Hatching Creativity. This isn't just another behavioral health podcast. This is the place where thought leaders converge to talk about real life challenges, breakthroughs, and pivotal aha moments. Thanks for tuning in to Hatching Creativity. Today, I speak with Zach Rothenberg from Nelson Hardeman Law Firm. Zach is a behavioral healthcare attorney who focuses on billing and employment law. And in today's episode, we speak about common pitfalls treatment providers fall into as it relates to employment law and different ways to avoid having problems. If you like what you hear, please like, share, subscribe, and tell all your friends about Hatching Creativity. Working in the HR and employment law field, what are some of the biggest things that you're seeing right now in terms of pitfalls that organizations are dealing with yeah. relating to HR and employment law? Yeah. So let me say two things for sort of big picture. Uh, the first is that one of the one of the things about employment law is it's very state specific. Uh, so I, I kind of want to say that right up front. I'm a lawyer in California. Um, I, I know California law. Uh, my my general understanding is that California law is much, um, I would say, stricter and employee-friendly than pretty much any other state in the country by, by a long shot. Um, but uh, what, what I say may not necessarily apply uh, to folks in other states. That, that's number one. Uh, and then second uh, big picture point is this, that w- what I find, and when we talk about these pitfalls, you'll see what I, what I mean, it is that um, by and large, folks who get into uh, the, the treatment industry are doing this from from a place of, of kind of passion, and getting back, um, and typically um, maybe don't have all the the business experience in the world that, that that people in other industries have, and they're making decisions frequently um, based on a slightly different calculation. They're hiring friends. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times, I'm finding folks hiring maybe people who. Uh, treated them when they were in treatment themselves um, and making particularly HR and employment related decisions um, that are not purely left brain, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's what drives a, a lot of this. And, and, and I, I, appreciate, I appreciate all of that and why they're making the decisions they're making. And I, I wouldn't um, you know, I wouldn't ask them to do it any other way, but it does raise a lot of these issues and sort of extra pitfalls to look out for. So those are my two big picture points. You know, it's funny. I see this all the time in compliance where you may have a BHT who has been there for a couple of years and then you show up in a meeting and they're now the director of human resources, or you take a case manager or a therapist and all of a sudden they're compliance. Right. You know, there is such risk and liability associated with this, and there's also so much knowledge that needs to be had. I promise not to get on my soapbox, but I will repeat this again. Sarah. Hire the right people for these positions. The risk is not worth it. And you could end up in a lot of trouble, either financially or in legal or legally, criminally, if you do things wrong, just because you're trying to either do things a less expensive way, or you don't have that knowledge. Not knowing is not an excuse yeah. when it comes to when when a, an auditor or surveyor 
an insurance company comes knocking on your door. Yep. Agreed. Completely agree. Um, so, should, should I? Oh, okay. So the, the first big issue that we see, and it, it, it raises a lot of different issues, but it all stems from the same thing, is what we call misclassification issues. And so that means two different things. First, that is whether the, pers- the people who work for you are employees or independent contractors. Uh, and that is, I think, a particularly hot issue in California. Um, there's been some legislation on it recently, and there's you know, these, these Uber and Lyft uh, lawsuits, the, the gig economy-related lawsuits. Um, but the, the way that, that the test for whether somebody is an employee or independent contractor has changed markedly in the past couple of years. For many years, uh, it was based on what we called a control test, which was, uh, as you could guess, is sort of based on the degree of control the employer has over the employee in things like setting hours, maybe wearing a uniform, um, providing supplies and materials, exactly how they're supposed to carry out their duties. The more control the person has over the worker, the more likely it's an employee and not an independent contractor. Well, that all changed uh, with a case called Dynamex a few years ago, followed by uh, AB5 uh, legislation in California. To uh, And by the way, if this isn't the case in other states, it will be eventually. I really think California is just sort of on the, the front of the wave, um, but it's coming um, to, to what's called now the, the Dynamic, Dynamex ABC test. Um, the A is the A in the test is essentially what I just described, the control part. It's the B part of the test that's the big thing, the big change, which is that to be an independent contractor, you have to be performing work that is mm, outside the scope of what the company as a whole generally does. It has to be it has to be different from the overall service of the business. So if you are working at McDonald's and your job includes making hamburgers, no matter what all the other stuff, you're an employee because McDonald's is in the mm-hmm. business of making hamburgers. If you uh, have a, a, you know, you spend time working at McDonald's and you're maybe cleaning toilets, then there's a potential you are an independent contractor because McDonald's is not in the business of, of cleaning toilets. That's um, a sense. silly, pithy example. Um, so that's that's part one, and and the, the reason that's significant is because, as most people know, em, employees sort of get a lot of additional protections and safeguards uh, that are ultimately expensive to an employer. So so typically, employers would prefer having independent contractors where they can. The second part of this, what I call a misclassification issue, is okay. Let's look just at the employees. Are they exempt or non-exempt from wage and hour laws? So there are exempt employees who are usually supervisors, managers, executives, um, people like that, um, who you could have on a salary. Um, You don't have to worry about overtime. You don't have to worry about meal periods and rest breaks. You may not have to reimburse for business-related expenses. Um, And then there's what we would generally think of as sort of the lower-level jobs, um, who are non-exempt, meaning you do have to follow the wage and hour laws. You have to pay them by the hour or have to pay, over, even if they're paid on salary, if they go beyond eight hours in a day or 40 hours in a week, you have to pay them overtime. You have to worry about minimum wage. Um, you have to ensure that they get their meal periods and their rest breaks and all these other um, important um, safeguards. Um, and, and so that there is a test on whether you are exempt or, or not, and that can get quite complicated as well. It relates to the 
the substance of the work that's being done, whether it's sort of high level or low level in, in really general terms, and also the amount that you're paying them. They have to make at least twice the, the minimum wage to be exempt. Um, so that's a big one, because what happens is you'll have folks that you've hired, maybe as in you think are an independent contractor, or even you think they're an employee, but they are exempt, so that you treat them like an exempt employee. You don't worry about overtime or whatever. Then they don't maybe forget they, if you fire like them, you or maybe they just Please leave like, and they come back and they can sue you and say, "Hey, I was not. I shouldn't have been treated as exempt. You, I was required to have gotten meal periods and rest breaks and overtime, and you owe me now a ton of money." Or worse, it could become sort of a class action in California. It's called a PAGA case, the Private Attorney General Act case, where it's like mm -hmm. a class action, and they sue on behalf of all of the lower level workers at the company. Um, for these meal periods and rest breaks, and those numbers add up. Uh, so you how, really, mm -hmm. how much time? Well, what kind of statute of limitations is on something like that? Uh, that's a good question. It it sort of depends on exactly which statute and which kinds of claims you're you're looking under. But it can be it can go back several years, four sometimes seven years, depending on the kind of case that you're bringing. Um, but yeah, if you're a larger company that has a you know a lot of lower level worker employees and you've been around for a while. I mean these cases go into the millions and millions of dollars very quickly. Um, and so the, the the important thing is to really give this a cold hard look um, right up front and make sure that you are classifying people the right way: employee versus independent contractor, exempt versus non-exempt, and go through what their work is, what you're expecting of them make sure you're conducting a really careful analysis and not just landing on the one that seems like it has short-term benefits for you um, because it's going to come back to bite you. You know, it's it's important to mention too, and just to reiterate what you said about every state being different. You know, the, this is not a hard, fast rule for everybody, but I think that my next question, which is going to be around, you know, how do you protect yourself? From running into issues. This is something that no matter where you're located, a lot of these things are going to apply to you. Uh, I would say, of course, just like when we talked about insurance payers, you know, really understanding those regulations is, is going to be really important. But how can an organization protect themselves from running into these kinds of issues the best they can? Yep. So uh, again, you, you need to make a really careful analysis up front, and it can be painful. It can feel um, unnecessary, I, I think, is sort of the sense I get from clients when I'm trying to convince them to spend a fair amount of time and money uh, with me you know, on the phone or, or, or with kind of interviews with their employees to making sure that we get it right up front, um, because that's really when you're best protected. And and. By the way, you do have an opportunity to to call whether it's the you know the Department of Labor or whatever the relevant um, state agency might be for you, and ask them these questions. You describe um, you know what you do. You describe what these individuals are going to be doing, and you can get some really good guidance. That that is not um, a cure all, right? It's still on you. Uh, but you can get a lot of great information from these experts who are looking at this stuff day in and day out. So I would I would encourage people to call the state. Don't be shy. And by the way, you can do it anonymously. People that they expect you to be anonymous in asking these questions. <laughs> and they, they they know that you're calling because you're calling anonymously because you want to have kind of the freedom to be forthcoming. 
um, in a way that you wouldn't if they asked who you were. Um, so please avail yourself of that opportunity. It's, it's really, really valuable. You know, that makes sense. And I don't know if, if you knew, but I, I'm a cyclist and I get- So am I. I, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. we, we got tons more to talk about. There that. we go. We got a whole separate podcast. <laughs> so I get, I get, and I definitely will, because I, because I think that makes a lot of sense to have a conversation about that. Um, I get tested by USADA, US Anti-Doping, and huh. they want to make sure that there are no banned substances in our systems. And I've heard stories about people calling up USADA for information, and they then you get put on this tracking list. Yeah, and and they start making paying a little bit more attention to you when you make those calls. But uh, with that said, anytime I've had to call USADA, I, you want to call in an anonymous fashion the best you can. And mm -hmm. if you feel more comfortable calling anonymously to one of these state agencies or regulatory bodies, then that's fine too. They you're saying they expect that you're going to be uh, to be calling that way. Yep, yep, yep. And the, 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 the key takeaway for me is just that, that there's, for whatever reason, this pervasive psychology of if nobody tells me I can't do it, then it's okay if I do it. Yeah. And, and, and it's, to me, that's really putting your, your head in the sand. You, you need, it, it is on you as, as the operator, as the business owner to get things right. Pleading ignorance doesn't apply to you anymore. No. Um, you have to go out of your way to find out the right answers and do things right. Ask the hard questions, even when you may not like the answer. That's why people don't ask them. So they don't want to know. They don't want to get the hard answer that says, no, you got to treat them like an employee and give them meal periods because that's expensive. It's, right. But you got to ask the questions. You got to find out the answers. Ignorance is, is, is not an excuse. It's true. We, we, again, in compliance, I hear this all the time. Mm -hmm. you know, people yeah. just, just don't want to know because they think that that's going to protect them, but it's actually the opposite. You know, I, I heard something recently and, and this was a, a, a situation that we had come across and I'm curious from somebody with your experience and being in California, your thoughts on this. And this was a software company that has employees all over the country they were talking about hiring somebody in California, but don't want to hire somebody in California because of all of the the issues and the employment issues and everything else that comes with California employees. And I know that they had spoken about possibly even hiring them as a contractor, thinking that that was going to resolve it. But based on what you said and, and our research, it, that that doesn't that's not necessarily the case that you can't protect yourself by hiring as a 1099. Is it discriminatory to not hire somebody based on the, their state's um, human resources policies? That is a good question. I think the answer is no. I know national origin. So, so there are statutes that identify uh, federal statutes and state statutes that identify who are in quote unquote protected classes, right? And it's sort of the ones you could imagine, right? You can't discriminate based on, you know, race or or gender or ethnicity or age or disability. Uh, and I know national origin is one of those. I, I don't think state residency is, um, but I, I, I 
would need to double check. Well, all those other to- all those other categories are things that people have no control over, and and that's one of yeah, the that's a good point, distinguishing right? things. Yeah. But I was just curious, or if there was a company that was in this situation that that uh, that I just explained, do they have any options? Or does California do anything for the for those employees to be able to help them? Because I mean, it seems like living in California could be a big hindrance to somebody being able to have an opportunity. Yeah, I, I, not that I'm aware of. I think if you're in California, you have to play by California's laws, and uh, if you don't like it, <laughs> you can move down. <laughs> that's that's how it works. <laughs> Thanks again, Zach. I appreciate you joining us, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Mike. I had a great time. Thanks for tuning in to Hatching Creativity. We appreciate your support. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and tell all your friends about the show. And remember, it's never just about one thing.